This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for November 29th, 2019. How does your Mac know to trust a website? Kirk and Josh discuss the chain of trust in Apple's devices, including information on Apple's two-factor authentication. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Okay, so today is Black Friday. If you haven't done your shopping and haven't listened to last week's episode, there'll be a link in the show notes where we talked about staying secure on Black Friday. This week, we wanted to talk about something that we briefly mentioned last week. We talked about when you go to a website, you want to make sure it's secure and you see a padlock in the address bar of the website. And this security is based on a certificate. But how do you know that the certificate is valid? How does your Mac or iPhone know to trust the certificate that the website is presenting? There is a concept called the chain of trust in computer security. And I'm going to quote from Wikipedia article here. This is established by validating each component of hardware and software from the end entity up to the root certificate. It is intended to ensure that only trusted hardware and software can be used while still retaining flexibility. So, Josh, I didn't understand that. Can you explain it? Essentially, you you always have to trust somebody. You can never just say, oh, well, I trust no one because really you're trusting somebody. If you're using a computer, if you're using a, a, a smartphone, you're trusting somebody. You're trusting Apple, for example, as the, the manufacturer of that hardware. You're trusting whatever company you bought that hardware from, whether it was directly from Apple. Uh, you're trusting the whole supply chain because you know Apple gets parts from all sorts of other companies has components that are manufactured in in certain places in in uh, all over the world. So, um, so are you saying that a factory manufacturing one of the chips in an iPhone could be compromised by I don't know Tom Cruise, and that some of the chips could have something in it that might not be safe or secure? It's entirely possible. Um, there, there certainly have been. Uh, we remember we talked about the big hack a while back. The big hack where there were components the size of a grain of rice that were found supposedly or embedded on motherboards and things like that and and how it allowed some foreign government to spy on anything that was going on through that device. Well, um, nobody ever actually found evidence that this particular big hack was really going on, but there have been a number of people who have demonstrated after the fact, after this story came, you know, came out, um, that it is possible at least to do something like that, um, where they've demonstrated with, you know, being able to create a very small component that, uh, they could solder onto a motherboard in a strategic place that wouldn't necessarily be all that noticeable and could have some of those kind of spy capabilities. So now what's the likelihood that some piece of hardware that you bought from Apple is going to have something like this, you know, embedded in it somewhere. Uh, it's so we're trusting it, Apple to make sure that doesn't happen. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. 
Right. But 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 so that's kind of part of this uh, whole idea of a chain of trust, right? You know, ultimately you're trusting somebody because you're not you're not creating the the physical components of your device and you're not also not creating the software that you're using. You're you're using macOS or iOS or even if you're using Linux, you're trusting the people who are creating the Linux software. Yeah, exactly. And in those cases, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people involved and who aren't working for a company that's overseeing it. Right. Yeah. Even open source software, um, there are a lot of, you know, real staunch like open source advocates who say because it's open source, it's like invulnerable because everybody in the whole world can see and know exactly what's going on in this software. Um, Well, true to to a degree, um, because, you know, if you're if you're you're downloading a binary that's pre-compiled, uh, that may have some additional code in there that wasn't in the open source component. Um, and also, you know, even in open source software, even if you're compiling it yourself, you know, get, getting the really geeky with this, um, you it's still possible that somebody has hidden something in that code that is not easy to detect. And um, so, you know, you at some point, you're always trusting somebody else when you're using any kind of technology. You're scaring me, Josh. <laughs> well, can I trust you? I don't know. Can you? <laughs> uh, well, OK, so this brings me exactly to my point about websites and certificates. How do we know that we can trust this whole certificate process? Is it just like some automaton on the other end saying, trust me, trust me, you can trust me, it's okay? Or is it more complex than that? Uh, Okay, well, when we're talking about a website in particular, there's something called a certificate authority. And so when you uh, go to any website, and literally almost every website now is HTTPS secured. Right. We talked about that in last week's episode, that you're unlikely to see a lot of websites that aren't secure. Right. Uh, You might see uh, maybe some people's personal homepages and some things like that um, where they just didn't really see the need to buy a certificate. Um, Right. But for the most part, almost any website you visit, pretty much any commercial website is going to use a certificate. And that means usually you get a little padlock icon, although even that may be going away at some point in some browsers. Um, They're moving Mm -hmm. to um, just making that the sort of the the default of every website should be secure. And so if it's not, we'll alert you. Uh, Then you get like a red star or something to warn you. Yeah, exactly. So they're moving in that direction. Google especially really wants to to start pushing in that direction. Um, but in general, that's kind of the idea is, you know, you've got a certificate authority that sort of says that the website that you're connected to, you have a secure connection to that website. That's really the main thing that HTTPS does for you, more so than actually validating that the website you're going to is really run by the people who, you know, seem to be running that website. Right. It's just confirming that the connection is secure, but also that it's the domain that you think you're connecting to, right? Right, right. And so there's a very common misconception that when you go to a site and it's got a little padlock icon in in the address bar, that that means that you're connected to the website that you think that you're connected to. But guess what? Phishing websites also use HTTPS. So they will also have a padlock. 
Um, but if it's, you know, apple.badguywebsite.com, um, it's, it could still have that same padlock and it could still look like Apple's site, but it could still really actually in reality be a phishing site. So there is a distinction there. So you've talked about a certificate authority. Um, well, two questions. First, a certificate is just a sort of a digital thing with a bunch of characters, but this uses encryption, right? It's not like I'm sending something over the internet that Tom Cruise could intercept and change and the web server can send something back that can be changed. When we talk about a secure connection, that means it's encrypted from end to end and it's like a handshake. Would that be a fair way to describe it? Uh, Generally speaking, that is true. Yeah, there are some exceptions to that, like on a corporate network, for example, uh, your you know your company may issue you a device that has their man in the middle certificate pre-installed on it, um, right. and in those cases, basically, usually they're doing this so they can uh, you know monitor your activity for for whatever reason. Maybe they want to make sure that uh, you're not messing around when you're at work. And so they'll block, you know, things that they think are productivity wasters, or maybe they'll just try to keep you from getting to, you know, pornographic websites when you're at work or things like that. Sure. And because HTTPS is on every website now, um, it's not necessarily always easy to block those things with a web filter, with a web content filter, unless you have a man in the middle certificate on a device. So in certain cases like that, a corporate network there, you may not really have an end to end connection from, from your computer to the server that you're connected to. There may be a hop, a, a man in the middle that's able to intercept your traffic and see what's really going on. Okay, so these certificate authorities, there's something called a root certificate authority. And that's like the great Oz of certificate authorities that everyone trusts. And how do we know to trust them? Is it that all the other companies have verified that root certificate authority? Is it a back and forth to ensure that they're who they are? Well, it, it, it is something like that. Anybody can apply to become a root certificate authority. Um, oh, you it, should do it. Yeah, yeah, I could. <laughs> the, the, in, interestingly enough, the, you know, the Hong Kong Post Office has their own root certificate authority. Now, why they need one, I have no idea. Well, it's not only that they have it, but that it shows up in uh, on Mac OS in Keychain Access. If you open the Keychain Access app, it's in the Applications Utilities folder. Um, in the sidebar, click on System Roots. You'll see, I don't know, about 100 or so different um, root certificate authorities. And they range mm-hmm. from um apple has a bunch amazon has a bunch um the hong kong post office chambers of commerce root digi cert some of them sound really good in trust root certificate authority um geo trust global global sign they all sound good right. um but then you get i z e n p e dot com who are they and who is Quo Vadis? That sounds like the bad guys in a Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> right. S-Z-A-F-I-R. No idea what that is. So there are definitely some names that are a bit strange, but it's not like these are interlopers in the computer. These are just sort of signatures that you might need, correct? Yeah. And and if you go in the Firefox browser, there's a way to look at all of the certificate, uh, uh, root certificate authorities 
that are trusted by Firefox as well. They actually use their own separate list of root certificate authorities because the Mozilla Foundation, which makes Firefox, has decided that they don't necessarily want to trust everybody that your operating system trusts. So if you're using Chrome or Safari, those both use the root certificate authorities, or CAs for short, that Apple has determined are trustworthy enough that your whole operating system can just trust those by default. Um, but maybe you're, you know, depending on who you decide you want to trust, uh, you know, and Mozilla Foundation doesn't necessarily trust all of the ones your operating system trusts, and so they've got their own list. But um, essentially, these root certificate authorities, they're kind of like the big boss. And then you've got other certificate authorities um, that chain back to those root certificate authorities. So they're they're kind of the the ultimate kind of deciders of who is allowed to have a certificate um, or who is allowed to issue a certificate to, to a, a business or a website. We're linking to a Wikipedia article on the chain of trust, and there's a great sentence in there. The trustworthiness of each layer is guaranteed by the one before back to the trust anchor. So basically, it's turtles all the way down to the head <laughs> turtle. <laughs> right, right. So the the root certificate authority, that's that's your ultimate trust anchor. Um, now, there have been issues in the past with some of these root certificate authorities. Um, some have made really big mistakes. Uh, in some cases, they have actually issued certificates to um, entities that did not actually really own a website. So someone pretended to be a website owner and got a certificate? Yeah, that's right. And uh, and so that meant that, for example, um, if somebody wanted to pretend to be Microsoft.com, they wouldn't have to create a phishing website that looked kind of like Microsoft.com. They could actually have a fake website and it, and there's certain things that also had to kind of fall into place here if someone were to really actually get you to go to a page that wasn't the real microsoft but looked like it maybe a subdomain somehow well it, it would it more be like a man in the middle type situation right. okay. but if in in certain cases it was possible it has been possible in the past with some of these uh, issues that have happened with these root certificate authorities where um, they've basically trusted the wrong people and and issued certificates for uh, websites that did not actually belong to the people who were saying that, you know, hey, we own this website. But if they've made mistakes like that, then why do people still trust the root certificate authorities? Well, in some cases, they go out of business. Uh, Diginotar... Ah was uh, one such company that uh, made this kind of really massive mistake. And they were called out for it, uh, and they went out of business shortly after that. Um, Apple revoked that certificate authority for macOS. This was many years ago. And when things similar to this happen today, um, it may not necessarily be that the company goes out of business. Sometimes they kind of get a slap on the wrist. Um, usually Mozilla is one of the companies that really calls out these certificate authorities and says, hey, look, you know, we, we have this system of this, this chain of trust 
and it ultimately comes back to you. And there's there's no higher authority in this chain of trust. And so you have a really immense responsibility to make sure that everything is perfect. And so when you have a major flaw like this, you're affecting the security of really everybody around the world. Um, so uh, when, when bad problems like this happen, th- those companies are held accountable. And in some cases, they can put have restrictions placed on them, if not just really like Diginotar go out of business altogether. So when you said that Apple revoked the certificate, does that mean that they can just silently send an update to the operating system to say that a specific certificate is no longer valid? It may either come in a, in a background update uh, that's, that's possible, or it could come as part of a security update that you have to choose to install. Wasn't there an issue not long ago where some big certificate authority had certificates that expired preventing websites from loading, and then Apple did something, pushed an update with the new certificates? Uh, it, it could be. I mean, those sort of things do happen. So sometimes um, you might notice if you go into keychain access that there are some uh, certificate authorities that expire this year even. There's one that expires on December 24th in trust.net. I would expect that a month before they would have issued a new certificate. So this this does happen, but... Um, uh, generally speaking, and, and w- when I'm talking about things like, you know, restrictions may be placed on some of these providers, you know, they may only um, issue certificates that are valid for up to a year, um, for example, instead of being allowed, you know, by the community to issue like three for, you know, three year certificates or things like that. So, there are some sort of like they're basically they're like pressure from other organizations that they can kind of put on these companies. And right. it's really the browser manufacturers and primarily Mozilla because they are the ones that that uh, are are well established and have their own list that they choose to, to curate. OK, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the chain of trust works with Apple devices and two factor authentication. If you're a longtime listener of the Intego Mac podcast, you may recall that we've often mentioned the privacy and security benefits of VPNs, virtual private networks. A good VPN can offer a number of benefits, such as hiding your personal IP address from sites you visit, apps you use, and people you email, securing your internet traffic when using public or untrusted Wi-Fi networks, enabling you to watch your favorite video streaming services when you're traveling, and even making it possible to get better rates when booking flights and hotels. Of course, it's very important to choose a VPN provider that you know you can trust. Intego's sister company, CyberGhost VPN, is our top recommendation for a safe, secure, and private VPN. And as a special Black Friday and Cyber Monday promotion, CyberGhost is offering listeners of the Intego Mac podcast an incredible deal. New CyberGhost customers can get CyberGhost VPN, the best personal VPN solution that works seamlessly with your Mac, iPhone, iPad, and other devices at a special promotional price. On Black Friday or Cyber Monday, check out the special link in our show notes at podcast.intego.com slash 111 for a special, deeply discounted price on CyberGhost VPN to fortify your online privacy. That's podcast.intego.com slash 111. Don't wait. This special offer is valid from today, Black Friday, through December 4th, 2019. Okay, we talked about certificates, and another chain of trust involves two-factor authentication. Now, the simplest implementation is 
You enter your username and password on a website, your phone number, they send you a code. And we don't have to say that it's insecure. We've done this a hundred times on the podcast. You put in the six digits and that proves that you are who you are. Well, that proves that you are who you pretend to be because maybe you set up an account under someone else's name and that phone's not really yours. Or maybe you got into someone's account with their username and password and stole their phone so you can get it. And so this sort of chain of trust, I'd say 99% of the time works fine, but it can be violated relatively easily. Now, Apple's two-factor authentication system, and I've got an article on the Intego Mac security blog called The Chain of Trust in Apple Devices. Um, They use a different process. When you create an Apple ID account, if you remember when you did it, you enter some information, you enter an uh, email address, you enter your name, um, you'll get an email to confirm your email address, then you have to answer a number of security questions. So you have a whole process to prove that you are who you are. Of course, you could be anyone. I could say that my name is Homer Simpson, you know, Homer at Simpson.com, and answer security questions any way I want. But your identity is still based around this whole process. Once you turn on two-factor authentication, you have to take one device that is becomes a trusted device that Apple can send codes to when you want to get into other devices. So let's say you've got a Mac, you set up your Apple ID account, you turn on two-factor authentication, you say this is going to be a trusted device, and then when you get an iPhone, your Mac can get a code from Apple, not via SMS, but securely, that you enter on the iPhone. And let's say you get an iPad and you've made that iPhone a trusted device. You can use the iPhone to get the code for the iPad, and the iPad to get the code for the Apple TV, and so on. And so you have this chain from one device to another that once you have proven your identity, it continues. It, it sort of cascades from one to another. This is something that um, is, is important to understand because an, an Apple system really is better than, uh, than, than SMS for a variety of reasons. But this also does assume that you're very careful with your Apple ID. You want to make sure that you never, ever enter, you know, uh, log in with your Apple ID on someone else's device. You want to make sure that that you're never giving out your uh, your password for your Apple ID, that you have a unique password, as we always talk about, uh, that you're not using on any other website. And... Uh, you really have to safeguard that Apple ID. Don't ever sign in with your Apple ID on someone else's device. Why not? If I'm at the library and I don't have my iPhone and I need to get my email, I can sign into iCloud, but I just, when the website says, should I trust this browser? I say no. And what that means is I can use it for one session, but then it won't remember me to trust the browser for a future session. Am I right? Logging into to the browser is a different thing from logging into the 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 whole device. Like so, if you're logging into um, to check your your email just in a browser, that's that's a different thing from say going into the app store and then putting in your account information there so you can download an app, or from going into um, you know the the system preferences on a Mac or the settings app on iOS. If you're logging in in those places, now that's going to become associated with the device. Your Apple ID is going to be associated with that device. Yet when you log in on a browser, you still have to get one of those codes to be able to log in. So it's still a two-factor authentication process. 
And if you do trust the browser, that means that someone else could log in, let's say accidentally your password and username got saved by the browser. Once you click trust, then that allows someone else to log in on that browser. So right. yeah, yeah, the distinction you're making is um, associating a device is different than associating a browser. Right. But you also make a very good point that anytime that you're logging in, regardless of whether this is, uh, you know, an Apple uh, email account that you're logging into, you always have to watch closely for those little check boxes that say, you know, always re remember me or or uh, or trust this device in the future. You don't want to do that. Uh, well, first of all, I wouldn't recommend using a library kiosk to log in to check your email anyway. Well, you might need to access something to, but yeah, <laughs> I'd say it's not best practice. Yeah. If if you really, really had to do that, um, yeah, make sure you're not trusting and remembering uh, your account on in that browser. Uh, and then I would also say, and change your password later on to make sure that, you know, it didn't accidentally get saved or something like that. So what's interesting with the chain of trust in Apple devices is that with Apple's more recent devices that have this T2 security chip, we won't go into details. We've talked about it in the past. It's just got some fancy encryption stuff. Um, you can use your Apple devices to interact with others. So an example, I can use my Apple Watch to unlock my Mac. And since Catalina, I can also use it to unlock apps. So for instance, um, those secure uh, preference panes in system preferences, I can click one of those. And then I get a little dialogue and I double press the side button on my watch and I unlock it. Um, there are some apps where you can actually enter your password like that. If you want to delete an app from your applications folder that you got from the Mac app store, you select the app, press command delete, and you'll get a dialogue asking to, if you want to approve it with your watch. You can also, because of this chain of trust, use your Apple watch to authorize Apple pay on your Mac. Now, if you have a, a MacBook pro that has touch ID, Touch ID is the first choice over the, the watch, but I have an iMac on my desktop. Uh, there's no face ID. There's no touch ID. I can use the watch to approve something on the iMac. And when you think about it, the watch is only approved because my iPhone is approved, right? And the mm -hmm. iPhone and the Mac and the watch all interconnect via Bluetooth. And this is all encrypted and they're all sending things back and forth. And boom, you can use one to control another. Right. It is a really interesting ecosystem that Apple has. And, and this is one of the reasons why people, you know, really tend to like Apple and like the Apple ecosystem is all of these devices are made by the same company, um, you know, and they're designed from the very start to work together in, in this way. And you don't really get that with, you know, a Windows desktop and an Android phone and, and, uh, and those kind of things. So, uh, and of course, Microsoft doesn't make Windows mobile, you know, or Windows uh, OS for phones anymore. They got out of that game. One other interesting thing about this whole process, again, two-factor authentication. So you verified yourself on all the devices. And Apple has a technology called continuity, which allows you to share information from one device to another. One of the most practical things they came up with, I think it was last year in Mojave, is a universal clipboard. If I copy something on my Mac, and go to my MacBook Pro, it's in the clipboard and I can paste it. It's on my iPhone in the clipboard or my iPad, any of my devices. And, you know, sometimes you are copying a password from your password yeah. manager on one device and you want to get it onto another. And how do you do it? Do you send yourself an email? Absolutely not. Um, you can't really send a text message. 
Um, but having that universal clipboard, which is securely encrypted, uh, it's a really powerful tool. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I use this feature. And then as soon as I'm done with that password, <laughs> pasting that into the place on the other device, then I copy something else to my clipboard just to make sure it's not lingering on my clipboard any longer than it needs to. Good point. So I use LaunchBar, and LaunchBar has a number of features. The main one is to launch apps, browse the file system, but it also has a clipboard manager, which lets you store 100 items in the clipboard. So what I do is I'll go back in the clipboard and display it and delete the one in question rather than ah, just copy okay. something because it's going to, it makes a stack as it copies new things. I see. So it's important to understand that once you've authenticated into one Apple device, you can authenticate into others. However, there's one weird thing that happens sometimes. When you do this, you're going to log into a new device. You get a dialogue saying that someone in such and such town is logging into your device. Do you want to allow them? And you allow them and you get the code. About a week ago, while we were recording a podcast, my partner went to maybe sign into something on her iPad or her iPhone. And on the other device, she got a thing saying that she was logging in from a town 150 miles away. Now, uh, we were yes. recording the podcast, and she didn't want to bother me. And she's like, oh, my God, something's wrong. So she went and changed her Apple ID password. There is this quirk that that alert that you get from Apple is not your location, but it's the location to which you are connected. So it's your ISP's server, which, right. in my case, I'm 150 miles from London, and it could be in London or it could be someplace else. Right. This is a very good point. And I actually have seen this happen before where in the case of a of a business that had recently gotten a new internet service provider and had its own block of IP addresses and all that um not a very common thing for most businesses but uh but you know sometimes if you're running your own servers and need to be internet connected you need uh your own IPs and so um this organization had bought some some IP addresses uh as part of this new internet provider and those IPs had previously been used by a company in Washington, and this was a company that, uh, or an organization that operated in California. And so every time that we would get these alerts, um, it would show that you know we, someone was logging in from from Washington, and and it turned out that this was just something that the ISP needed to update. Um, and so once they had transitioned those IP addresses to show that they were for a California business, uh, that eventually went away. But so in some rare cases, you may even see it show that you're in another state. So just be aware of that. You should not normally see that, though. Well, here, 150 miles away, that's as much as being in a different state. Yeah. Um, and it's relatively common because it, it's going upstream to the ISP's like main server, and that's where it's being located. I think what you need to know is if you ever get one of these alerts and you haven't tried to log into something, immediately tap don't allow because that's suspicious. But if you exactly. have just tried to log into something and you get the alert immediately, then you can go ahead. But I think Apple should fix this. I think this is something that is very deceptive for a lot of people. And, you know, along with that, if you ever do get an unexpected dialog box like this saying that someone is trying to log in with your Apple ID, that very likely means that someone else has the password for your Apple ID account and is right now trying to log in as you. So make sure to change your Apple ID password right away when you see something like that happen. Yes. And so that's another good thing about Apple's chain of trust is that because of this authorization across devices, 
you can go to the Apple ID website. And even in Catalina, if you go to System Preferences, Apple ID, or on your iOS device in settings, you can go and you can see all your devices. And for instance, I'm looking at my iPad Mini 5 from my iMac. I'm looking for information about it. I can remove it from my account. I can go to the Find My app and I can erase it or lock it. I can turn off Apple Pay on any device where it's on. So the fact that you've got this web of authentication means that if you are ever worried about a device, you can always turn it off from other devices. Right. Yeah, this is a, a great feature. And um, one of the many ways that Apple actually does a pretty good job of, of trying to protect our security. Okay. That's enough. Today's Black Friday. I know a lot of people, if you're listening to this in the morning, you're anxious to go out and buy things. Um, I'll let you know next week if I do get that freezer I talked about last week. But until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>